Hello and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katches. And I'm Stephen Avila. And today we have quite the distinguished guest on the program, John Pepper. John has had an incredible career to say the least. Former CEO and chairman of Procter & Gamble, former chairman of the Walt Disney Company, and co-chairman of the board of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, amongst many others. Take a minute to catch your breath, Stephen. The resume goes on and on and on. This man has accomplished so much in his life. But he's more than just the resume. You know, I loved how he talked about his relationship with his family, with his wife, with his grandkids. It was so moving. And then how he talked about values, right? Aligning his values with the company, Procter & Gamble, that he worked at for almost 40 years and eventually led as CEO. It's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, we've got a great episode for you today. Thanks to everyone who made this possible, especially the men and women behind the booth and our esteemed Stern Chats president, Nasham Jamshidi. Steve, you ready to get into it? Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi everyone, my name is Stephen Avila. And I'm Justin Katches. And today we have John Pepper on the program, former CEO and chairman of P&G, chairman of the board of the Walt Disney Company, and an impressive array of experience in the nonprofit sector as well. John, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So, John, uh, one of the things we like to do is just ask our guests to introduce them to our audience in their own words. Would you mind doing that? Well, I'd be happy to. I'd... Um you asked me to give a 30-second elevator speech. not something I've been asked to do for a while. I boil it down that I'm a, I'm a very proud father, a lucky husband, proud grandfather of 10 grandchildren, uh, an enormous beneficiary of a whole series of relationships with people who helped me believe in myself more than I did at the time. And uh, from that, a great career at Procter & Gamble, and then quite, quite long in years, invited to join the board of the Walt Disney Company and became the chairman there and have had the opportunity to work on many things in the community, particularly in education, which have been extremely rewarding and absolutely critically important. So I'm glad to be with you all here today. Well, we really appreciate it. You've got a quite a busy day ahead of you. You're interviewing with us. You're doing a fireside chat with the Marketing Society. You're doing lunch with faculty. You're doing a tour of the campus with some Stern MBA students. You're attending a policy conversation. It sounds very tiring. <laughs> Is this just another day in the life for you? A little bit intimidating. No, that's that's a, that's an unusual schedule at this point in my life. Wouldn't it, times in the past it would would have been a pretty typical day, but and not today. So um, one of the things that we like to understand about our guests is just where they grew up, kind of what formed your early childhood. If you could just describe and, and paint a picture for us, what was it like growing up as John Pepper? Well, I grew up in a very uh, small town, even at that time, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, known today, I think, more than anything because it's the home of Yangling Beer, mm. uh, the oldest brewery in America. I'm a fan. At, at the time, it was 25,000 people, and today it's about uh, 14,000. Uh, it was a city that was important during the anthracite coal region as that industry went down it's continued to decline uh, I grew up uh, in a in a, in a Catholic religion uh, went to um, a Catholic school parochial school growing up I had one sister who unfortunately died and sadly uh, at a very young age uh, no other siblings 
I was blessed with an amazing pair of parents, particularly my mother. I went away to school, to a, a school in Rhode Island, my junior and senior years, which was an all-important all change uh, in my life. Um, and from that, with some good fortune, I was able to enter Yale on a scholarship, Navy scholarship, without which I wouldn't have been able to afford to go. And I passed that scholarship really in the most amazing circumstances because you had to pass an eye test for the Navy, 2020 uncorrected. And I knew going in it was not 2020. It was mm -hmm. 2025, and I thought maybe I shouldn't even bother. But I did. I went up to Boston, and I always remember that night I went to see um, Guys and Dolls the movie, which was, of course, way before you and maybe even your parents were born. And I went to bed and said, I'm going to get to sleep at 7.30, and I will sleep, and I'll be as well-rested as a human being can be, and I passed the test. And um, the next week, I actually went and got glasses, which dumbfounded the the naval training people <laughs> at Yale. said, what are you doing here with glasses? Well, once you got in, you were able to have corrected glasses. So I went on to Yale, and that was an enormous blessing. And from there, the Navy, for three years of active duty, which without which I never would have been accepted at Procter & Gamble, I'm sure. And um, I joined P&G absolutely certain I'd be there for a year. I was going to go to Harvard Law School. I'd been admitted. Uh, I was probably what you'd call a nerd growing up. and My kids would call me that anyway. <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to P&G thinking I'd stay for a year, and I stayed for a career because I fell in love with the place and um, called the Harvard Law School Registrar after about six months, and I certainly hadn't decided on staying in P&G for a career, but I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer, even as certain as I was going to be, and I liked business. So that's interesting. And, you know, how does one defer their time at Harvard Law School, much less reject the offer completely after you fall in love with this career? You know, what was that conundrum that you were facing at the time? It was that I wasn't ready to go back to study. Uh, oddly enough, at least in my mind at the time, because I love studying, I love research, I love writing, still do. But I'd been running uh, at the time, I was on a destroyer going around the North Atlantic chasing Russian submarines, or so we pretended. Uh, they were probably fish. Uh, <laughs> but it was exciting. It was yeah. really exciting to have this job, a head of communications, charge of the whole ship at the age of 23, 350 wow. people. And I wanted some more excitement for another year, and I thought business would do that, and I thought P&G would do it from the little bit I'd learned when I was was getting ads for the Yale Daily News. I was the advertising manager for that paper, and I met a um, person who I was selling an ad to to go recruit on campus, and after I got the contract signed, I asked him, what are you recruiting for? And he said, um, brand management. I said, what's that? Oh, he said, that's a program we have at P&G. You come in and you run the business from the first day just like it's your own, your own business. Well, it was a little bit oversold, but uh, I thought that sounded pretty cool. So when I was going to work for business for a year, I thought, I'll go to that place that I remembered from five years before. And it's telling what I remembered. I didn't remember so much what he said. I remembered the twinkling in his eye when he said it. And I always remember that because it... It revealed something I guess we all know, and that is how much we convey by our body language mm. beyond our um, our words, or in addition to our, our words. And um, so it was that wanting wanting to have another year 
of something other than studying that I thought would be exciting uh, that led me to call to Harvard. And frankly, they didn't resist it. Maybe they didn't really, didn't really want me that much. They said, no, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you come. We'll have you come a year from now. And then I called them and said, don't bother to hold that place. So that's that's what brought you to P&G in yeah. you know, rather fortuitous circumstance. And you ended up being there for nearly 40 years. So what is it that kept you there the whole time, and, and how did you think about that from kind of that initial exciting phase that you, that you just described? Well, business, unlike what you would know from your own backgrounds, I didn't know business. The bit I knew came from what was being written about it. Man in the Gray Flannel Suit by Sloan Wilson, organization manned by William White. It sounded so bureaucratic, so stilted, slap on the back. I had no idea about the, the intellectual discipline, and I would call it simply the search for truth. And I wasn't shocked by the people, but I never thought I'd run into a group of people that would be as smart as my classmates at Yale or find the work as intellectually challenging as I did at Yale, but I did. Uh, but I came to see that the whole idea of serving consumers and developing really genuinely new products wasn't a bunch of BS. And I also discovered that the concern for people they had was much more than I would have expected. Again, that may not be the case for you young folks in business. You probably had internships. You know business in a way I didn't. But to me, it was revealing. It was an eye-opening, and I liked it. It kind of measured with some of my own forming values mm -hmm. that this is not only about making a buck, but if you don't make a buck, you're not going to be successful. But it's more than that. It's about providing a service. It's about creating something with a life to it. Well, all of that was a matter of, of course, week to week, month to month, year to year. It didn't just hit you mm -hmm. when you walked in. Uh, but it came pretty quickly with individual encounters I had with management that showed they were more interested in being sure we were right in the product's acceptance by consumers than getting out with a quick win. I always remember... Um, Six months, every young person at P&G or maybe anywhere loves to find a project they can get their name on that will be a quick win and a big win. And I found one. and It was on Cascade Dishwashing Detergent. That was my first brand. Only 7% of homes then had dishwashers. Give wow. you an idea of the timing. In any event, some young person ahead of me had put in test another form of the product. And uh, they had it, I can still remember, this is 1963, in Cleveland and Seattle. And they were testing it, and the business was way up. So I proposed, after six months, that we expand it. And I got called up to the vice president, the head of the whole soap business. And I thought he was going to pat me on the back and say, get out there with that great idea. And he's, that's not what he had in mind. He wanted to ask me how certain I was that this product would be right for a very particular category of consumers. And I didn't have any idea. I could not answer the question, so I tried to blow past the question by saying, Mr. Hanley, that was his name. It's clear everybody likes this. The business is up 30 or 40 percent. He said, you didn't understand my question. I'm interested in a particular group of consumers, and I want to be sure the product is right for them before we expand this. Well, I left the room with two thoughts. One, I wish I had had somebody from market research and R&D with me to answer the question and the other is I'm even more confirmed I joined the right company because this guy is more interested in being sure this product is right than expanding quickly. So we got back and, and uh, gave him what he needed and we expanded. 
But a lot of lessons, I won't get, take more time on it, but a lot of lessons like this hit me in terms of commitment to do the right thing. For so many of us in, ni- in the 1960s, we think of this as like the golden age of marketing and consumer products. Can you just give us some color of what P&G was like a company then and maybe how it evolved over the time that you were there? Well, it was just a huge bevy of activity. We had just a, we had one, one computer. That's all we had for about 50 young people. And we were all very young. I mean, we're in our 20, 23, 24. And you had to sign up for time on the computer during the day, and that time might run to 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. Of course, this was a, a time when television was still relatively new, was really coming in. Print was a big deal at that time. And um, you could reach at that time audiences uh, that you can't reach today. We could introduce new brands and did, and we would provide samples to 70, 75% of, of the American public at their door. Uh, we could be on a TV show and we'll reach 80% of the, of the public if you were on two channels. So it was extraordinarily broad. Uh, we were doing some media analysis. If you were doing Cascade, you were not going to be on national television. You'd be in Sunset Magazine on the West Coast because you'd know it. So there was some of that, but it was a very broad-based. We were very close to our advertising agencies and still are now. Some of my best times I can remember coming into New York from Cincinnati, and we did some of our very best, I'd say, business at a bar after the normal business hours. <laughs> and I thought it was a great detriment, frankly, when we got nonstop flights that allowed you to come in and, and back the same day because it cut down on the amount of what I'll call social time uh, that we had with agency partners. <clears throat> I think a real challenge for today, in my own opinion, uh, is that because the social networks are so available and, and emails and text messages and so on, uh, there is this risk uh, that we will cut down on the time that's spent just one-on-one or with a group together forming human relationships that allow you to accomplish so much more than if it's simply on a business platform, let alone if it's simply being done by emails and texting, which are so damned impersonal and which really don't allow you to understand another person as an individual, which is so important to getting into the most difficult subjects and being able to get real issues on the table without getting into a fight. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, it's definitely something that's changed, uh, particularly in our generation, right, where social media and and text messages and emails, like you said, put up this kind of electronic barrier. Well, Um, it's an excuse. It is a barrier, and it's mm. also a crutch. Mm -hmm. It's a crutch to say things that... Maybe you don't want to say in person, but you should say in person. Mm-hmm. could be by telephone, better yet, in person. Uh, but it also introduces the challenge that you face in terms of having any free space in your life. Because yeah. when I went on vacations and took long weekends, it was almost a given uh, that I wasn't going to be having uh, continued contact. Now, I'd be thinking still, but it's one thing to think, and it's another to be th- having constant contact within Absolutely. the iPhone. It's tough to unplug. But I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is about aligning your own values with Procter & Gamble's where right. you worked. And when you first got in there, you, you know, kind of understood these lessons that came up in your day-to-day work and said, this is a type of company that I want to work at. But you actually rose to the level at which you could set the values of the company, right? And you could direct where you wanted those values to go. So I'm curious, 
once you got to that level, right, the CEO level, the chairman level, how you changed your tact to guide the company where you thought it should be from a value standpoint? Yes. Well, the, the values that, and then the value of establishing a set of values to me occurred very early on in my career. I'd been with the company about five years, and I, I wrote a thought piece how important I thought it was to register in writing and then in telling war stories, because the best way you communicate values is through stories. Um, but I had the opportunity, as your question suggests, uh, in, in 1987, which was the 150th anniversary of the creation of the company in 1837, uh, it was, we were going to make a big deal out of this 150th anniversary, and it seemed to me to be an ideal time to really set down in writing what we came to, to describe as our purpose, values, and principles, PVP we called them. And when um, we went about this, um, not in a way of, okay, we're going to sit down and make something up or figure out what do we want to be. It was trying to mine from the very heritage of the company um, what was most important in terms of why we existed and the, what were the values we would want to have guide us. And, and we, were, we were greatly helped as a company because as you go back to 1837, we were formed by two people, um, Proctors and Campbells, who had deep moral roots. And they were evidenced in a lot of things that happened in the company. I won't take the time to describe but during the Civil War, how we provided products and made sure we didn't make too much money, et cetera. So we put that together, and the time for doing it seemed right because we had just made a lot of acquisitions. We had just acquired Richardson Vicks, uh, which expanded us into Southeast Asia, into China, and we had not been before. And because we could rather see on the horizon the opening of China itself, Oh, while we didn't know it happened so quickly, of course, Eastern and Central Europe quickly followed in 89, 90. So we thought with all these new employees and this 150th anniversary, we ought to take this occasion. So we spent a lot of time on it. Uh, we thought sometimes that we were nuts in how much time we were spending on every word. Uh, but we put down what our purpose was, which came pretty easily, which was basically to provide the superior products to consumers around the world and in the process of doing that to expect to provide leadership returns to shareholders and a leadership place of employment for employees and make a contribution to the community. It was a statement of purpose that recognized multiple stakeholders, uh, starting with the consumer, uh, obviously our shareholders, uh, but the community and uh, above all our employees. And then we went on and I needn't go through this to spell out what we regarded as our key values, which we would try to leave knowing that everybody can put values up on a wall that's relatively easy, uh, but they mean nothing unless you're making decisions based on them, what I'll call the tough decisions, the mm -hmm. ones that could go either way, the ones that involve short-term uh, sacrifice for what you hope will be a long-term benefit. I imagine by the time a decision gets to your desk as the chairman and CEO, no decision is an easy one to make. And I wonder, you know, through your time at P&G, you know, what change did you see in the industry and particularly at the firm as your time there? And, you know, what were some challenges you experienced as a CEO? I think uh, changes, obviously we became a global company um, and we became a diverse company. The first African-American manager in P&G was hired the first year before I joined the company, 1962. That was the first I hired the first full-time woman, you'll find this hard to believe, in marketing in P&G. Until then, we had some women who would come in through market research. 
But I responded to recruiting literature and written in 1962 that said, we're looking for good brand men. Brand mm -hmm. men, that's what that was, the terminology in the recruiting brochure. Uh, so this, the biggest change in the company uh, has clearly been the diversity of the employees and nothing else really is close. Uh, but we were very much a U.S.-centric company. We were in 11 countries when I joined the company, 35,000 employees. Today, we're in well over 100. We had a management team of top management of 11 people when I joined the company. All were U.S., all were white, all were male, except there was one Canadian. That was our tribute to diversity among the 11. Uh, today, the management team, top management team, is 350 or so, uh, more non-U.S. than U.S., um, obviously met 40% or so women. So that's been a huge change. And it's been so exciting. The diversity of the employee base is just eye-opening and exciting, and it's what you experience, I'm sure, here at NYU. And the global reach, of course, has introduced us to different cultures, to different people, of course, different business opportunities. Uh, we've gone a long way, as most businesses have, from what would have been described as a command and control structure uh, in the 50s and 60s, already starting to change, but still a command and control structure, uh, especially perhaps in manufacturing, but generally that's no longer the case. Of course, the command and control structure of that kind today in our kind of business would be uh, suicidal. And that's, that's been a huge change, pace of change. Um, we thought we had to move fast. Folks today in P&G and other companies have to move ever so much faster. The mm -hmm. landscape is changing. Uh, so those are some of them. I really underscore the importance of diversity, but the challenge it presents of inclusion. It's one thing to be diverse. You're, you're inevitably diverse today in a company like Procter & Gamble. That'll happen. The critical thing is to really take advantage of that diversity, to be inclusive, to be open to different points of view, to welcome them, and, uh, and listen to each other uh, carefully, respectfully. I had a, a follow-up question on diversity, because um, I think we, we talk a lot today about racial diversity. We talk a lot uh, about the diversity between men and women in a company. We talk about uh, international and, and national diversity as well. But one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about is the diversity of class. And I know you're a big fan of Hillbilly Elegy, the book by J.D. Vance. Uh, you grew up in a small rural town. Um, and I'm curious how you've seen the company and really your life through that lens, through the lens of, of class, both at Yale, which is obviously a very prestigious university, um, but also at a company like Procter & Gamble and, and how that's influenced your life and the way that you think about diversity. Well, I think the issue of the diversity of class and recognizing really the importance of it is so important and more important maybe today than ever. The... Um, of course, in a university like Yale, I'm sure NYU, I was talking to the president at dinner with Andy Hamilton last night, talked about 23% of the students at NYU being on Pell Grants, uh, which is certainly a manifestation of the school's commitment to have people who've grown up in poor circumstances be able to have access to what everybody needs today. Uh, I think it's, it's terribly important. I think the Hillbilly Elegy is a book, really, for me, had a lot of lessons, but one of them was to never forget the challenge that a person faces coming from 
an economic background that could be described as poor uh, coming into an environment as Vance did, uh, Yale, or it could be NYU, and recognize that's a real transition. And I, I think this is true also. This transition has to be recognized in terms of, of race as well. And for people to be able to feel at home um, in, in this new environment is terribly important and not to be taken for granted that they can feel they belong in, in that environment. I think, um, I think one of the great challenges that exist um, in terms of the Af African-American and minority being able to advance is not so much cap intellectual capability, even professional capability. It's being able to take part in the social systems and the cultural systems outside of work with which so much actually happens in terms of relationships being formed, confidence being conveyed, expectations being conveyed. So I think we have to be very conscious of it. Um, in, in, a, in a company like P&G, when you think about class, um, I think that partly relates to the respect you have for every single person. I mean, obviously, I'm in a plant, R&D, I'm going to be meeting with individuals who come from very different classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, the church I belong to has got extraordinary diversity in terms of class. And it's so easy to stereotype people who you look at and think, well, that of a different breed maybe. And what a horrible mistake that is because mm -hmm. if you get to know them, you'll, you'll learn things from them. They'll have insights that will, you'll sit there, and, at least I do, and say, wow, I learned something from that that I might not have expected because I thought this person was from a, quote, poorer background. And the whole thing of implicit bias that exists and being talked about so much uh, today, which is very real, it doesn't apply to race and ethnicity and gender or thinking style or body size. It, it applies also to class. Mm -hmm. And we need to be conscious of it. You know, I, <clears throat> I appreciate you saying that because I think, to Justin's point, it's something that we think a lot about as students here at NYU Stern. And, you know, when we think about the companies we want to work for and the organizations we want, we want to be a part of, a commitment to these issues is something that's a, a, it's really important. And I think also uh, visibility is equally important. And I'd be curious, you know, to transition to your time, um, your time at uh, Walt Disney Company as chairman of the board. You know, I think Disney has received a lot of accolades of, you know, putting out products that uh, show and highlight people of color and highlighting strong stories with women. And I'd just be so curious to hear about your time at Disney and, you know, some of the, some of the things you saw there and, and some of the projects you were involved with. Well, I saw a great deal of commitment to what you just referred to, and that is uh, to present uh, women who had not been presented in heroic roles sufficiently and, and do that in color with, with individual movies. I was struck by the sensitivity of this, really from Bob Iger. I'd called Bob, uh, as I often did after a movie I'd seen. I'd say, Bob, I just saw Muppets or Enchanted or whatever it might be, and I really <coughs> liked it. And so I called him one day and I said, I've just seen the Muppets. I don't know if you've seen the Muppets movie, but that's a cool movie and it's got a great song. Um, and I told him, I said, Bob, I really like that Muppets movie. And he said, John, I did too. It's a good movie, a lot of respect, but you know it was missing something. I said, Bob, what was that? He said, do you realize we did a terrible job of showing the diversity of an, a diverse audience in the final finale of the movie? I don't know if you've seen it, you'd remember it, where 
Kermit is there with his whole gang, which he's finally assembled, and they're going to put on a big, big show, and the people come in to fill up the theater. And Bob said, if you look at that theater, the people that came in there were not diverse. We just didn't have a diverse audience. And we didn't even have enough young people, he said, which I found astounding, but I had not looked at the audience the way he did. He said, not only that, he said, John, we've been able to read the impact that people notice that, and it's hurt our audience in certain diverse groups. Mm. Um, and obviously a small and rather anecdotal story, uh, but, but just to show the sensitivity, which Bob Iger had, this is the CEO of the company, to a matter of the audience formation for one scene in one movie. And uh, was one thing, the, almost every board meeting I was ever in, we had a member of the audience want to have them bring back Song of the South. I don't know if you knew that movie, Song of the South. And it's, it has some things in it today that would really be rather offensive. Mm. Uh, and Bob had to explain it with you. It really was a great movie at the time, but it's got things in there we just would not want to be associated with today. So, again, I didn't, I'd say Procter & Gamble uh, has a huge commitment, which has been going on now for many years, several years, to bring greater diversity into our advertising. What, what is shown in advertising makes a difference. And, and we should be showing in advertising, and we in, increasingly are, is role modeling of behaviors across gender, of race, um, so that we're presenting positive pictures of how, at least as we would see it, and I think most people would, people ought to be working together, men and women, and having positive role models for people of minorities. And we want advertising, and we're not doing this alone, other people are as well, and we're talking to other companies about it, but we want to use advertising and things that aren't advertising. You've seen recently perhaps a controversy around Gillette, uh, which talked about masculinity and boys and boys, you don't, there's a way you don't want boys to be boys. Mm -hmm. um, and then we took on the issue of race, race talk in P&G, how do you have conversations that are difficult on race. And these were all things that we, we felt were important and we felt we had brands attached to them where we had a right to make a message. Not everybody agrees with that. You've got to be protected on some controversy when you deal with an issue like this. But I think businesses have a role to play in this, and certainly do, because they have such an influence on the world by virtue of what they do. Mm. So you mentioned at the beginning putting up women as heroes and a lot of the stories that you focused. I want to talk about one woman in particular, uh, your wife. And I've read a lot uh, about how much you love her and the relationship that you have. And you mentioned at the beginning of the program that you've benefited a, a, you know, a great amount from, from these relationships throughout the course of your life. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of that with our audience uh, from a personal side, like how, how you met her and, and how that relationship has blossomed over the course of your life. Well, first, I want to thank you for that question. It's, that's very meaningful to me that you'd have put time against even understanding that. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're all lucky in our lives, and you're all still very young, and you've had things in your life already that you look back and say, if it weren't for that, what would be? And certainly the two most important, I would say, to, for me would be my parents, particularly my mother, and with the other would be my wife. And I met her on the infield of the Kentucky Derby in 1964, um, May the 2nd. There's a story there for sure. And uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was on a blind date, and she was on a date with another P&Ger. 
And I did not want to be there, really. I didn't know what the hell am I doing at a horse race. I'd only been with P&G for less than a year. I had a lot of work to do. I wanted to get ahead. Uh, but I agreed I'd go down and see this horse race. And I, I'd been to horse races before. I kind of thought they'd be fun. And then I met her. She was sitting on a blanket. I'll always remember this picture. She had a brown dress on. She was on a blanket. We were on the infield. In those days, you could be on the infield of the Kentucky Derby and actually see the race if you chose to. And uh, you couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Too many people. Yeah. But I, I, I looked at her, and she doesn't like my saying this because she says all you care about is looks. But I looked at her, and I said, I want to marry this woman. You and knew right away. I knew right away. I, knew, I, knew, I, just, I just knew right away. It just hit me. It just the character in her face, she says, means all you cared about is looks. And I said, no, <laughs> no, no. I said, I'm a great reader of character, and that's what I was reading, yeah, sure. Uh, but in any event, I... It took me three years to get me, her to marry me. I was doing stuff today that probably would leave you liable to some form of accusation by the police. Notes under her door, notes on her car window. I, I did a terrible thing, really. I, she had four roommates, and I decided I'd date one of them. And I liked this other girl. <laughs> but I thought I'd, I'd date her in order to make Francie my the woman, I'd make her jealous. That was that was an ulterior. Oh was an isn't that awful? Yeah. It's a terrible motive. Uh, I mean, I did. We we enjoyed going out. I enjoyed going out with her. I still know her. She's a good friend. Of course, she knows this story. But what, what terrible thing happened was Francie saw me dating Susan Grayson. Was the other woman? And she said, "John, I'm so glad you're going out with Susan." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh shit, this is exactly what I didn't want." <laughs> <laughs> So she finally agreed. We finally agreed to marry me and got married in, in the 9th of uh, September, 1967. We just celebrated our 51st wedding anniversary. And I have this feeling. Congratulations. Right, that's thank, great. thank you. That's an amazing accomplishment. It is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. It's, it's one of those numbers I know is true and find it hard to believe it's yeah. possible. <laughs> I mean, we're 51 years. Am I really that old? Uh, but I thought the day I really married her, I thought, my feeling was, uh, now everything is possible. Nothing can go wrong. I had that feeling. I didn't know what would happen at work. I was still only with P&G for well, four years, and I didn't know I'd have a career there. But I knew everything was set, and it's proved that way. I'd never have achieved what I did if it weren't for her. She's carried the weight on so much, raising the family, um, confidence, taking care of stuff, taking care of my family. I had a lot of challenges. My mother did and father, and she really helped them, and my sister, and uh, spent a great deal of time on that, in addition to the kids, which started to come one and a half years later. And uh, we had three boys and moved to Rome, and we, they were five, four, and eight months, and, and it was a big deal in those days. We went to Rome. We had a lovely assignment, amazing. But, um, yeah, I was just very fortunate. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I was just going to say, you know, as we look to begin the next journey um, in our own lives after we graduate and we leave NYU, you know, what advice would you have for someone re-entering the job market now? You know, you, you talk so much about these foundations that are so important to you, your family and the sense of purpose and being a part of meaningful work. You know, what, what advice would you have for somebody that's getting ready to start this? Well, it would depend if you're already married or you have a partner who's your relationship with is critical. Um, I'd, I'd want to be absolutely sure that that relationship was preserved and honored 
in wherever you started. Uh, I hardly need to say that, but that would be the first thought in my mind. The other, in seeking that next position, um, I'd hearken back to what you is self-evident, and that would be finding something you feel you could really be excited about. Hopefully not for the short term. You won't be probably making a long-term career commitment, but you think this, I'm going to learn a lot here. I'm going to be excited by the people. I'd want to be in a place where I felt that the people where I was joining were very interested in my development, not only in my business capability uh, that I bring or the experience I'd bring. They obviously would, they weren't interested in that. That wouldn't be hiring you. But I'd want to find that special place where you've developed the feeling that they're really interested in you or me as an individual and that they'll provide an environment where to the extent I want to grow, they're going to give me every opportunity to do that in terms of the assignments they're giving me, the counseling they give me, the relationships they want to have form with me. Because there is real difference. I mean, everybody will say the right thing. Everybody will say that. That's what they want. Mm. But to try as best one can to dope it out by getting to know them, but by talking to people who've been there, uh, who you respect, and will be able to tell you what the really reallys are. And then I'd go into it, if at least one of my philosophies has been, you won't even know you're going to be there, maybe for forever. But I've approached every job I've been in, whether it was the Navy, job at, frankly, on a work thing, as if it's the only job I'd ever have. I, I've gone into it mentally, mm. knowing that probably this won't be. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm going into this as if it's the only thing I will ever do. And I think only in that way do you get intensely involved in learning where you learn if you love it. Because in the end, you have to love it. Um, and if you find you don't after you've really given it a chance, then I think you need to find something else to do. Well, you just got, then you need to find something. But you, if you don't give it a chance, and I don't think you give it a chance unless you're really intensively, deeply into it, um, unless, you find, unless you find that love is there. It's the wrong place. Mm. Good, good advice for for all graduating business school students. Indeed. So, John, as we wrap up, uh, I understand that you have a couple grandkids, and I want to give you ten of them, ten grandkids. <laughs> I want to give you a chance before uh, before we close out here to uh, to say anything to them uh, or to your family. Well, I was once asked um, not too long ago, four or five years ago. Almost that question, which was posed to me if, if all you had was a paper napkin and you were asked to write three things on that paper napkin that you most wanted your grandchildren to know, what would you write down? Well, that was a whopper of a question. Yeah. I'd never had anything like it before, and I, I thought for maybe 20 or 30 seconds, probably no more, and I said I'd write three things on that for my grandkids and my children. First would be believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You'll probably have doubts. Everybody does, except as I said to a group last night, probably Winston Churchill probably did not have doubts. But everybody has doubts. But recognize all you've done. Recognize what you've accomplished. And believe in yourself and believe in your best self. Second, do what you think is right. Just do what you think is right. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. And third, love people. And those were the three. Believe in yourself, do what you think is right, and love people. And of course, I amplified on that in a talk I gave later, 
And it wasn't that you're going to love people all the same. And there may be a few people who you come to know you actually won't love. But they'll be the exception. My only point was to approach all people with an open mind and an open heart and be prepared to like them by getting at least to know them before you do a value judgment. So if I were talking to my grandkids, I think, beyond that, and if they were here, I'd say, let me stay close to you because you give me the greatest joy in my life right now. So stay close. I just love watching it grow up. <laughs> Incredible. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Your inspiring stories, and I think, frankly, your wisdom um, is much appreciated today. And I know you have a very busy schedule. Thank you for coming by our humble little studio here in Stern Chats. Thank it's you so much. An, it's been an absolute pleasure, John. Thank well, you. Well, it's been fun to talk to you. 